Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have two guests. We have Bernd Waller, who is a consultant in anaesthetics and intensive care medicine at the Medical University of Innsbruck. He's written extensively on prognostication in avalanche, in hypothermia management, and in aspects of mountain trauma. And alongside him, we have Hermann Brugger, who is the head of the Institute of Mountain Emergency Medicine, an associate professor at Innsbruck Medical University. He's a past president for the Society of Mountain Medicine and the Medical Commission at the International Committee for Alpine Rescue, and has authored around 60 book chapters and nearly 300 publications in emergency medicine. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for giving up your time to come on and share your expertise. It's a pleasure. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So today we were going to talk about CPR and resuscitation in difficult environments. And I know you've both written a number of papers around this subject. Herman, I guess probably the first question to you, what inspired looking at at CPR with restricted access as a subject for academic study? Well, it's not at all academic because all this started from a very practical question. How can we speed up the unburial of a completely buried avalanche victim. This was the main question. And there is, as we know, a little time, a very short time span where we can expect to have an avalanche victim alive if we extricate the victim from snow. So it is a question of time and the pressure is enormous. The research question, how can we speed up extrication and bring a patient into a position where we can start CPR? This was the main question. Now, I know that we were talking before we started recording about avalanche fatalities within your region. I wonder if you could just tell us what a a normal year is for you in terms of avalanche fatalities. Well, in my province, it is a small province of about 350,000 inhabitants, we have between 6 and 12 avalanche fatalities every year. But if we look at the European mountainous countries and North America, then we count every year about 120, 150 dead avalanche victims every year. And this remains more or less stable since many, many decades. Also, the number of exposed persons is increasing enormously. So it's not only twice the time three decades ago compared to today, but it's 10 times higher than in the 1980s, for instance. So we must be doing something right if the overall numbers are static, despite 10 times the amount of people participating. Absolutely. 
So all the measures to protect skiers from a snow burial, from an avalanche burial, they did work in the last decades. So preventive measures, but also the extrication times, they were shortened in the last 10, 15 years, thanks to electronic transceivers that have been improved and also the shovel techniques. So techniques to extricate a, a victim in very, very short time out from the snow. And that's why we researched into this question, how can we speed up the extrication and bring a, a patient into the right position to start CPR? Because we know that about three quarter of all the avalanche fatalities are due to asphyxia. And everybody knows that to counteract asphyxia, we need a very short time to open the airway and to provide them with rescue breath. And here it is not a question of 10, 15, 20 minutes, but a question of a few minutes. Therefore, time is the key to rescue an avalanche victim. And this belongs more or less to the companions that accompany the victim that are uninjured and they remain out of the avalanche and they are able to rescue a buried victim. So not the organized rescue companies, but the immediate first aid by uninjured companions. I think that's really interesting. And I guess in Scotland, we have far fewer avalanche deaths, thankfully. But actually, the topic and the research that you have done, I think, is very applicable even at the roadside and in people's houses, because there are often times when I have come across patients who are wedged in a corner and if I'm on my own or with a, a small team, we are unable to move the patient. And so having this mindset of minimizing time so we can start resuscitation, even if it, they are not in the perfect position, I think is something we can generalize from your research. Absolutely. It's not only the avalanche victim, but also in a simple car accident, the first access to a patient can be extremely narrow. So if a patient is entrapped in a vehicle, then the first contact to the patient is through a window, for instance, and the access can be extremely narrow. So this is similar to the approach to an avalanche victim where you have a hole, which is two, three meters deep and you have a very narrow access. Then you need time to free the body and to bring the body at least in a provisional position where you can start opening the airway and providing the victim with the first five rescue breaths. So this is a question of minutes. And in these first minutes, the body can be in a very complicated situation, so not in a standard position where you can start standard CPR, but you have a victim which is 
in a prone position or sitting or lying on his side or in the best situation in a prone position. Then you can start rescue breath quite easily. But usually you cannot start a CPR from a standard position. So Bernd, I'm keen to bring you in at this point because I think the first bit of research that you did was looking at time to starting effective CPR. I wonder if you could talk us through what that study showed. Exactly, David. So basically, it was our goal to conduct two separate studies. The first one was published already in 2019, and we were looking at extrication times during avalanche companion rescue. This means how long does it take for a companion to rescue the avalanche victim? So the first question is, why were we focusing on companions? And this was already answered partially by Herman, because in the essential first minutes, and we are talking about 15 minutes in which the victim has to be rescued in order to regain circulation and in order to survive the accident without any neurological impairment. And this short period of time can only be achieved by companion rescuer because mainly organized rescue organizations or helicopters or HAMS organizations and so forth, they won't be able to reach the victim and extricate the victim in those required 15 minutes. Therefore, we are focusing on the companions and they have to be trained and they must know exactly what to do. So in the first study, we were recruiting various participants and we were burying avalanche mannequins in about one meter of depth because one meter is the average burial depth. And we asked our programs, our volunteers to extricate those mannequins from the snow. And we were placing those mannequins in the three different positions. Those positions that we were deciding on, they are the three most common positions. And among them, two of those positions, the victim is lying on the belly and on the thorax. So access to the airway is very difficult. And furthermore, most of the patients are buried facing downhill so the head is basically facing downhill and this is an advantage because this means that the patients can be or the patient's airway can be reached as one of the first points so this is one of the first points of contact and there we were basically wondering furthermore if the airway can be accessed as one of the first points, can we not start ventilation and can we not start resuscitation? So the aim would be to shorten the time to effective resuscitation by not digging out the whole patient, but just accepting that partial access might be enough to start some meaningful CPR. Yes, exactly. So Basically, one of the first most important findings of the first study was we, we have to realize that from locating the avalanche victim, so we are using a probe, an avalanche probe, 
to locate the victim. So we know where the victim is lying. It takes another median of 10 minutes to fully extricate the victim. And this study was one of the first ones to actually analyze the various steps of extrication and to realize that we have the first contact within two minutes and the access to the airway takes another five minutes and then another three minutes to fully extricate the patient. So we have to realize that it takes quite some time to fully extricate the patient and bring the patient into a standard supine position to start CPR. So therefore we want to emphasize it's worthwhile to already start ventilation and even start CPR if we have access to the airway and the thorax of the patient. Presumably this then would mean that other responders could then dig out the rest of the patient whilst CPR is yes, going exactly. on. Yes, exactly. I was about to mention that. So one of the rescuers is already starting CPR whilst the others continue to extricate the the patient from the snow. Exactly. So basically, this is to save time and we are performing two tasks at once. Fantastic. May I add a comment about that? So to understand why this is that important in an avalanche victim to start with rescue breath because in contrast to a cardiac arrest so cardiac arrest by a myocardial infarction for instance in the asphyxia the blood is without any oxygen and the first thing you have to do is to oxygenate blood through rescue breath so rescue breath is the ever the very first thing you have to do with an avalanche victim with his suffocating. That's why it might be even enough to give some rescue breath first and the avalanche victim is regaining circulation from rescue breath alone. And the access is much easier and to give rescue breath uh, compared to a thorax a massage. So make chest compressions, because for chest compressions, you have to do at least the upper part of the body. Do you find that there is much restriction of the chest wall from the snowpack to give rescue breaths without a clear thorax? In my opinion, no. I don't think so, because snow, if you are digging out a person or you are freeing the upper part of a body and the head and the upper part of the body there is no problem to ventilate a person uh, mouth by mouth so this is not a problem at all may i add one more aspect of, of the study david certainly uh, thank you so one of the key findings of the first study was that we were finding out that even minimal training already has a significant impact on the performance of our companion rescuers. So they can achieve significant reduced extrication times even with minimal training. This emphasizes the importance of uh, training, even the extrication and also CPR. Because in many avalanche trainings all around the world, people learn how to operate the avalanche transceiver, they learn how to operate probe, and the training stops once the probe has hit the target. 
and uh, therefore we want to emphasize the importance of a continuous training. People must learn how to extricate a patient from the snow in uh, rapid speed and they also must be trained in, in CPR because a lot of patients when they're extricated they are in cardiac arrest. So the first steps have already been done and then the companion rescuers must continue with CPR. This is extremely important. Absolutely. And that ties into the body of evidence around bystander CPR and non-professional CPR in that a fairly small amount of training has a big impact in terms of time to chest compression. That's correct. Having gathered this information, I understand you then went on to look at the mechanics of how CPR could be delivered to these patients. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So from the first study, we gained the information that it would be extremely important to already start chest compression and ventilation during the period of extrication and while the victim is still buried. And this led to the second question, is it possible to perform high-quality CPR with restricted patient access using alternative rescue positions? We were performing another mannequin study in which we were simulating restricted patient access and we asked our participants to perform CPR, so mouth-to-mouth ventilation and chest compression, in three different positions. The first position was the stand position that is being taught worldwide. The second one is the straddle position where the rescuer is basically sitting on the pelvis and reaching above the thorax and compressing the the sternum. And the third position is the overhead position where the rescuer is basically kneeling above the head bending forward towards the mouth and also bending forwards towards the the thorax to deliver ventilation and chest compression. And how did you measure the efficacy of the CPR in these mannequin studies? So these are excellent <laughs> rescue uh, mannequins. Basically the ones that are being used for in-house training they deliver information to a computer and to the operator. They deliver a load of information concerning ventilation, so information on the tidal volumes, meaning how much air can the, the rescuer blow into the mannequin, how often does he succeed, but also how much air goes into the stomach, how much inflation can we detect. Uh, furthermore, there is lots of information on the efficacy of the chest compressions, the frequency, the depth, but also very important, the compression to decompression ratio, because as we have learned in the recent years, compression is important, but the recoil and decompression is equally important. And we were also looking at hands-off times. Much more information was gained from those electronically supported rescue mannequins. And so what did the study show? Because certainly as a often solo responder, I quite often end up doing over-the-head CPR because of access or because it allows sure. me to, to manage mm-hmm. an airway at the same time. Is there much difference? 
Uh, luckily, there is not much difference. In our study, we were able to show there is very little or no significant difference in ventilation and chest compression parameters in the three analyzed positions. So the efficacy in uh, chest compressions and in ventilation in alternative positions compared to standard positions is basically the same. So we, we highly encourage to provide uh, CPR and ventilation to in alternative positions. For example, the overhead position or the straddle position. Furthermore, we were finding out, and this is in line with various findings from the literature, that ventilation is very hard to perform. This is not new because ventilation, mouth-to-mouth -mouth ventilation, or as we already also analyzed, using a pocket mask is very hard to perform. And we know that. And this might be one of the reasons, amongst others, why various organizations are more and more advocating compression-only CPR. However, I want to come back to what's been said by Herman before. It's extremely important in, for instance, avalanche victim and other asphyctic victims to also provide ventilation because those patients are in cardiac arrest due to a lack of oxygen. So ventilation is very important, but ventilation is very hard to provide in all positions. But to say it more positively, it's equally as good as in standard positions. Was there much difference in the volumes of gastric sufflation between the three positions? Because that's often seen as a marker of providing good breaths, is that you don't overinflate the stomach. That's correct. We, we were detecting quite a significant number of gastric insufflations. And even though we have not really found a significant benefit by, of using the pocket mask, this was one of the points where we detected a benefit of the pocket mask because in the alternative positions using pocket mask we saw a smaller number of gastric insufflation and we think this is due to the better reclination of the head. So the airway is more effectively opened when you are straddling or over the head than when you are approaching the patient from the side, is that correct? If one is using the pocket mask, correct. That's interesting and I suspect merits some future research because there are a lot of public access defibrillators and pocket masks available. And if there is a significant difference, that might be worth feeding into the resuscitation chain. Absolutely. There are various different information on, on, on the pocket mask. Most of the information gained from the literature is saying it does not really make a difference whether you use mouth-to-mouth -mouth or pocket mask ventilation. But in our study, we found a difference in fewer gastric insufflation using the pocket mask. So I'd like to tie your research into some of the wider literature that came out during the COVID pandemic. I think with a lot of intensive care patients being nursed in the prone position, there have been some papers looking at CPR in the prone position, providing compressions to the patient's back. 
I wonder, is this something that might be of interest for future research, given what Herman said, that many patients are found face down in the snowpack? Absolutely. The CPR in the prone position is extremely important. This has been shown by various studies that it is, if performed correctly, equally as efficient. But we we also advocate to uh, start uh, CPR in the prone position and start compressing the back of the patient. And I think it works equally as well. We were also looking at analyzing the prone position, but basically we were stopped by technical problems because the the rescue mannequins they are not licensed they're not licensed for cpr in the prone position so there's no to my knowledge at least there is no mannequin that can be used to provide significant data for cpr in the prone position we would have loved to done it i'm sure it's extremely important the literature says it's equally as efficient but we were limited by technical reasons i have to admit Presumably there's still the problem with the avalanche victim that accessing the airway in the prone position can be very difficult. And I su- suspect Absolutely. that concerns around trauma and radical movements of the neck will come into play as well. Absolutely. So once again, the majority of avalanche victims, they die from asphyxia. So the airway has to be secured or ventilation has to be secured. And then again, we find the majority of avalanche victims in the prone position. So how can we bring those two components together? The literature says, well, you can't really. You can't really perform significant ventilation to the unsecured airway. Okay, There are some studies that have analyzed CPR in the prone position, but most of them, as you said, David, have been performed on... ICU patients, and most of them, especially when they are COVID victims, they are already intubated. Those patients are already connected to the ventilator, so there's no problem. But if we have a patient that is in the prone position and the airway has not been secured, we face a great challenge to ventilate the patient. We are thinking and planning to perform studies to conquer this problem one of the solution might be supraglottic airway devices but uh, this has to be analyzed and, and, and trained for the practicality indeed i wonder also with the move to hands only cpr there was some discussion i haven't seen any evidence but some discussion of the fact that cpr itself in compressing the chest may provide some small tidal volume effect to the lungs. I wonder if you think there is any benefit from this, if we can't get it airway, to at least start the compressions so that there may be some small movement of air in the airways. Well, I can't really tell you any data on this kind of information, but I want to emphasize what uh, Hammond has said before, because it's so extremely important. We are dealing with patients that are suffering from asphyxias. Their main problem is a loss of oxygen. And in asphyxic patients, we're talking about avalanche victims, drowning victims, but also children who are suffering mainly from non-cardiac causes. Their 
ventilation is crucial and is most important. And in those cases, I'm pretty sure that very little movement of air won't be enough to conquer the problem. Aggressive early airway interventions. I fully agree with Bern that uh, in an asphyxial state, it is the first measure to ventilate because the blood is deoxygenated. And if you repair the circulation, it doesn't help the victim to survive without any oxygen. And the little movement into the lungs from mechan from chest compression will not be sufficient to enrich the blood with sufficient oxygen to survive in a warm body, in a normal thermic body. It might be enough if the body is deeply hypothermic, but if you have a normal core temperature, it won't be enough to prevent the body from a permanent neurological damage. But the most, uh, I would say, surprising result of this study was that ventilation, mouth-to-mouth ventilation, had almost the same quality from the three positions, three different positions. And when we were teaching rescuers, it was almost a dogma to say you have to start from a standard position, you have to dig out the body and start CPR from a standard position as soon as possible. But now we are quite sure that it is possible to start ventilation in the hole of extrication and it's not necessary to dig completely out the body first. And this is the first message, I think. Indeed. And I think there is a lot in a complex rescue, as Avalanche invariably is, there is a lot of having to adapt to what you find on the ground. And if we have good evidence that the CPR and the ventilation is as good, then I think there's more weight of evidence behind just getting CPR, good CPR ongoing, rather than trying to achieve the normal position in inverted commas. Absolutely. A, a very nice result that also chest compressions have a very high quality from all the positions, from all the non-standard positions. And uh, 45% of the victims are found in a prone position, but 55% are found or in a supine position or in a lateral position where ventilation and also chest compressions are easily possible. And if the chest compressions can be done in a prone position, maybe in the future, as already Bernd has mentioned before, with supraglottic airway, you can even start a ventilation in a prone position if you're able to do this. Indeed. And I wanted to pick your brains about what you think the next areas for research are, both in terms of specific to avalanche, but also wider questions about resuscitation when you don't have optimal access. Well, the first will be to convince people to go away from the dogma that correct CPR is only possible from standard positions. 
And this applies not only to avalanche victims, but there are many situations in emergency medicine where you have not a, a standard position that you can perform CPR in an emergency situation. So confined space you find everywhere. And there are multiple situations where you can use CPR or perform CPR from a straddle or overhead position. And this should be taught in the future. So I think it's, first of all, education that is needed for the first rescuer, for the first responders, and also for the emergency medical personnel. Absolutely, I agree with Herman. In my opinion, there's two points that the future research has to focus on, or amongst various others. The first one in asphyxic patient is the still unsolved problem of ventilation. How can we easily and in a fast way secure the airway? How can we provide uh, ventilation to those asphyxic patients and furthermore to patients that are buried for a longer period of time and how can we easily or manageably secure the airway in patients who need CPR in the prone positions. And the second one is also, as Herman said, in training. So we have to emphasize the importance of training amongst layperson, amongst rescuers, amongst companion rescuers. And we have to bring out the message that it is extremely important to train avalanche extrication, to train CPR, to uh, even train CPR in alternative position, to also provide ventilation. And because we have to bring out the word that it might be too late once the professional rescuers and the HEMS crew arrives. So there is a lot to be done, but there is a lot to be gained as well. Indeed. And I think both of these studies add hugely to that impetus that we must get people to start any sort of ventilation and CPR as early as possible, rather than waiting for the professional crews or for the perfect setup. Herman, we ask all of our presenters to give three top tips and takeaways I wonder if you have two for us, and then I will get two from Burned, so that people have something to to remember this podcast by, because we've had a, a lot of really interesting information. I would say, as we know from science and from general emergency medicine, in an asphyxiated patient, start ventilation as early as possible in any situation you find an avalanche victim. And the second would be, don't think about standard positions. Start ventilation as soon as possible, even if you are in a completely, I would say, awkward position and forget the dogma of doing CPR only from a standard position. In the future, maybe there could also be the possibility of performing chest compressions on the back of a patient. It is not clear whether this helps if you have no access to the airway 
and you cannot free the airway regularly. But this has to be clarified in the future if this is a plus, if you start uh, chest compressions in a prone position. Fantastic. But the first message is start ventilation as soon as possible. Excellent. Bernd, final thoughts from you? Final thoughts. One thought that is extremely dear to me, it's the training, because we have seen that even minimal training significantly reduced the extrication times. We therefore want to emphasize the importance of regular practice, meaning CPR practice being included in other trainings, also regular practice in specific extrication techniques that should be part of any training in avalanche companion rescue. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you both for giving up your evenings to chat with me and to record this podcast and for sharing your considerable expertise. And I hope that we have another good winter where there is many folk on the hills and very few folk involved in accidents on the hills. Thank you, David, for the nice talk. Thank you very much, David, for the kind invitation. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.